I never want Robert's playing to end. I don't know about you. Thank you, brother, for blessing us, Christ's church, and for honoring the Lord Jesus with the ways in which he has gifted you. If you would, take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, this Palm Sunday, I was asked, are you doing a sermon in particular for Palm Sunday? And, and uh, it's, it's often the case that I'll just continue to march through the book I'm in, but when Easter comes around, of course, we'll take a bit of a break from Acts. From time to time, I may do a Palm Sunday sermon. I guess by definition, this is a sermon on Palm Sunday. But we are just going to continue to make our way through the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, which of course is centered on Jesus Christ, and so it's quite appropriate that on Palm Sunday or any other Sunday for that matter, we preach the text of Scripture. So Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31, beginning in verse 23, concluding just after verse 31, we'll read through verse 31, and because this is the Word of God, and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, this Palm Sunday. If you are able, would you please stand to your feet, indicating that you are ready to hear from the God who still speaks to his people in his word. Acts 4, beginning in verse 23, Luke wrote as he was carried along by the Spirit of God these words. When they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The grass withers. And the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated, church family. As you will know, and even as our brother Alan just led us in prayer, 
Last Monday, March 27th, was a day of unspeakable and incalculable loss for members of our extended spiritual family. The Covenant School, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, was the target and hatred and brutality of a 28-year-old woman named Audrey Hale, who was, by the way, church family, an instrument who was deceived. Not fundamentally the enemy. Which is hard to remember at times, isn't it? Audrey entered the school late that morning and killed three students and three staff members. And while there are many details that we simply have not received, it's no coincidence in my mind that Covenant Presbyterian Church and the Covenant School espouses an unwavering faith and commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ and Christian orthodoxy. There are, by the way, some details we may never learn about why this took place. But we have learned, haven't we, church, to look beyond the things we can see to the things we cannot see. This church and school family needs our prayers, don't they? They need the support of those who know them and love them. They need the comforting presence of the Spirit of God I make no claim to ascertain the motive of the woman who committed this horrifying sin. But what is clear to me is that this church and school family has suffered, is suffering, and will suffer immense opposition as a people seeking to faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how, how should Christians, how should churches respond to such opposition? What does it mean for the church in the 21st century to respond faithfully in a manner that adorns the gospel of Jesus Christ to threats? Opposition and even death. In Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31, we find the answer to this very question. I don't think it's an accident for us this morning as a church family. Not something that I planned other than simply to continue to march through the book of Acts. And this morning what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the way in which we should respond as a church. Other Christians should respond as a church by looking together at how a particular church in Jerusalem responded to 
opposition they faced for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, we're going to do this that is answered the question, how should we respond as a church to hostility or opposition? We're going to answer this question by making three observations. You can jot these down and we'll walk through them together in their place. First of all, we're going to look together at the church's response to opposition. And here we're just going to note how the church responded in Acts 4, 23 to 31. The church's response to opposition. Secondly, we're going to look together at the church's request. The church's request when faced with opposition. And then third, after identifying the church's response to opposition and the church's request when faced with opposition, we will conclude our time highlighting the result of the church's request. The result of the church's request. So first, the church's response. Second, the church's request. Finally, the result of the church's request. I want to mention something that I haven't done in some time as a pastor, actually. And, and to be frank, what reminded me to do this this week was because covenant Presbyterian Church, Christ Covenant Presbyterian Church there in Nashville, Tennessee. Their pastor, Chad Scruggs, does this. My pastor used to do this years ago. I used to do it, and I haven't done it in some time. I'm going to do it this morning, and perhaps I'll continue to do it. I don't know. I want to give a couple of items for our younger worshipers to look for in the text this morning. Our younger worshipers. I have a nine-year-old who sits in this room during the entire sermon. And uh, I, I thought about him as I was preparing this week, of course, in part because of, because of our brother Chad and the loss of his nine-year-old and the loss of two other nine-year-olds in this shooting. But if you have a younger worshiper with you this morning, if you're a grandparent or a parent or guardian of a younger worshiper, use these two questions. Ask these two questions after the sermon, over lunch, later this afternoon. Younger worshipers, I want you to look for two things in the text. Are you ready? First, first, what did the believers pray for? What did these believers in the text pray for? Be able to answer that question after the sermon. By the way, you can come up to me and ask and answer that question if you like. You can meet me even on your way out this morning, younger worshiper, and tell me the answer to these questions. I would love to hear from you. Secondly, secondly, how did God answer their prayer? First, first, what did the believers pray for? Secondly, how did God answer their prayer? That's for our younger worshipers. This morning. Let's begin with our first primary observation, the church's response to opposition. Look with me, if you would, at verse 23 to establish a little context, okay? When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, a bit of background here. If you've been with us, you know this perhaps. If not, this is Perhaps new information to you. Peter and John, the apostles, have just been released after having been detained for a day and then interrogated by the chief priests and the elders of 
the Jewish people. These were religious leaders and they were arrested, as it were, and kept in custody for a day. Why? Because they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were teaching the people in and around the temple that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all of Scripture. That Jesus is indeed, was indeed, the Messiah promised throughout the Old Testament. And so the Jewish leaders didn't like this much. They arrested them, kept them in custody, and then interrogated them the next day, warning them to stop speaking about Jesus to anyone. These apostles also had been used as instruments in the healing of a crippled man who sat outside the temple for a number of years. This crippled man was just over the age of 40. And now... Now, through Peter and John, he was walking and leaping and praising God, bearing testimony to Christ's powerful presence through the apostles. And so this, of course, caused a commotion. And the Jewish leaders took note. And it bothered them, not necessarily that Peter and John had ostensibly healed this man. Of course, it wasn't Peter and John that healed the man. It was Jesus who healed the man through Peter and John. They were bothered, however, the Jewish leaders, that is, they were bothered because in response to and in light of the healing, Peter and John were teaching the people about Jesus the Christ. Well, in our text, Peter and John are being released. And so, verse 23, when they were released, that is, when Peter and John were released, notice again in the text, they went to their friends. And then they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them, namely, they must, they must stop teaching others about Jesus Christ. Now, the ESV I'm not really sure why the ESV does this in this text. I really don't think it's the best translation. If you're holding the ESV, which is the text from which I preach and uh, from which I read each Lord's Day morning, it translates a particular word, their friends. You see that? When they were released, they went to their friends. The word used here really is not a word used to describe friends in this context. Uh, we could translate it broadly. They went to their own. But most likely, this is a reference to the church. Friends is a bit superficial, I think, for this context. When Peter and John were released, they went to the church. They went to the believers, the people that have already been described in the first few chapters of the book of Acts, the people who had been baptized in the Spirit of God, the people who had joined the Christian community and were worshipers of Jesus Christ. And so Peter and John go to their spiritual family. And they reported what these Jewish leaders had said to them. Now notice verse 24. Just the beginning of verse 24. When they heard it, that is when the church heard it. They, again the church, they lifted their voices together to God and said. Now stop there. Here we find the response to opposition. Now note, the response of the early church to opposition was united prayer. That's how they responded. This first century church responded to the threats, the opposition of the Jewish leaders with united prayer. We've already noted, if you've been with us throughout this series so far, we've already noted the centrality of prayer within the first few chapters of the book of Acts. Just to mention a few of those examples to you first. 
Acts chapter 1, verse 14. The Christians in Jerusalem, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. So this book begins with God's people gathered and gathering for prayer. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, Luke describes the church after Pentecost in this way. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, namely the Lord's Supper, and the prayers. In Acts chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of what? Prayer. Why were Peter and John going up to the temple in Acts chapter 3, verse 1? To pray. And by the way, that was when, of course, they met the crippled man. And, and by the power of the, the Holy Spirit through them, by the power of the risen and ascended Christ, healed this crippled man. Well, now in chapter 4, verse 24, the response of the church to the opposition of having been arrested for teaching in the name of Jesus and receiving an official warning not to do so anymore. Remember that warning. They were to teach no more at all in the name of Jesus. In response to this, the church gathers to pray. There are many potential ways to respond to opposition, aren't there? Many ways we might respond to threats, to loss, to suffering, to persecution, to teaching, or rather in response to our teaching in the name of Jesus Christ. It, perhaps it's easy for us to respond with worry, wondering what we're going to do if these things come to fruition. What are we going to do if we are those who have to suffer immense loss on account of following Jesus Christ and proclaiming the gospel. Another way we might respond to opposition is protest. Protesting the injustice, the mistreatment, and the hatred that is extended to, to us, to our spiritual family. Others may be tempted to respond with anger and retaliation. Misidentifying the real enemy. Resentment. It's possible to respond to opposition with retreat and fear, remaining terrified for our lives. Or, perhaps worse, overt compromise. Returning to the text of Scripture and dismissing the clear teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ in response to opposition. Some of these are understandable. Some perhaps aren't overtly sinful. Others are overtly sinful. Luke uses none of these to describe the persecuted church in Acts 4. That isn't, of course, to imply they didn't experience some of these responses. Rather, the central response they experienced was united prayer. Rather than responding with worry or protest or anger or retaliation or resentment or retreat or fear or compromise, they responded by gathering in prayer. And I want you to notice what they prayed for and about in verses 24 and following. Look at the text with me, verse 24. The second part of verse 24, sovereign Lord, you see that? 
sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Verse 27, for truly in this city, They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Everybody gathered against Jesus. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, I want you to notice a couple of items in this prayer. And again, this is still under our first primary observation. They're still responding and they're responding with united prayer. But what did they pray about? A couple of things I want you to see. First, notice the church's faith in God's sovereignty over the opposition the church experienced. Let me say that again. Notice the church's faith in God's sovereignty over the opposition the church experienced. In verse 24, they address God as sovereign Lord. Despota. The word from which we get our word despot. And by the way, despot carries negative connotations in our 21st century context, but this is not the case in Koine Greek. Despota is not a negative word. This word emphasizes One's absolute sovereignty. And this is the word the church chooses to use in this prayer. Despota, sovereign Lord, supreme king, ruler, and master. And this is why they go on to pray. In light of this, because he is the one who possesses absolute authority and sovereignty, he's the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. There is nothing... There is nothing that materializes outside of God's sovereign will and oversight. And they go to creation to demonstrate this. God is the creator over all things that places him in a category all by himself. You see, it isn't simply that God is stronger than we are on the same, as it were, continuum of strength. We are just a little bit strong and God is just really strong. No, no. It's it's not simply that God is authoritative on a continuum where we also have small amounts of authority. We have a little bit of authority and God has this massive amount of authority. Another way to say this is God is not different from us simply According to quantity. He's different from us according to quality. He's in a different category altogether. He possesses absolute sovereignty as creator. No one else exercises that sovereignty. And this comforts the persecuted church in Acts chapter 4. Now remember... Peter and John have just been arrested and threatened. And we're going to see throughout the book of Acts what this will mean for them as they persist in the gospel. And we find also throughout church tradition and early church history 
that the apostles all likely save one, John, will die as martyrs because they persist in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John himself suffered immensely and yet persevered and endured likely well into the 90s or late 80s. But Peter and John have just been released. And they find comfort that the opposition they're experiencing, the arrest, the day of being kept in custody, the threats, and anything else that may come their way only takes place under the sovereignty of their creator God. So I wanted you to see that first, God's sovereignty over the opposition the church experienced. But then notice second, second, notice their faith in God's sovereignty over the death of Christ. So they have faith in God's sovereignty over the opposition they're experiencing, but they also have faith over God's sovereignty over the death of Christ. After all, God spoke about the opposition of the nations and the peoples against Jesus in Psalm 2, where David wrote, as he was moved by the Spirit, why did the Gentiles, the nations, rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers were gathered together against someone in particular, against the Lord and against his anointed. And the church interprets Psalm 2, this psalm, in verses 27 and 28, notice, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. There are the rulers. There are the kings who were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the opposition to Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, and the death of Jesus took place according to God's sovereign plan. And you see how this is comforting? As Peter and John, and as the church as a whole in Jerusalem, is coming to grips with the reality that they are facing and will continue to face immense opposition. They are comforted by two sides, really, of the same coin, and the coin is God's sovereignty. On the one hand, God is sovereign over any opposition the church faces. God never is surprised by the opposition his people face, the threats they face, even the deaths they suffer. The other side of the coin, of course, and perhaps that's not even a, a faithful analogy, this is really the foundation and the lens through which they view the other bit, is God was sovereign over the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. In fact, he planned it. And it happened according to plan. This gives the church immense comfort. Dear family, God nowhere promises, does he, in scripture that we will experience an opposition-free existence as Christians. Indeed, everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Christ informs us, we saw this last week, that a servant is not greater than his master. He goes on to say there in John 15, verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. However, all such opposition and suffering occurs as a part of God's absolutely sovereign plan. And the cross then, the cross of Jesus Christ becomes the lens through which we are positioned to interpret all our suffering and all the opposition we might face. And you know this, if you know the Lord this morning as Christians, we believe that God has rescued us from sin, death, and hell. How? By sending his son who became human while remaining God, lived in perfect obedience, suffered, and died through crucifixion in our place and for our sins. Was raised from the dead on the third day ascended into heaven and will someday come back to this earth. And it's through, it's through the suffering of the God-man. It's by means of his suffering that we now have life eternal. And then that becomes, as it were, forgive me, that, that becomes the lens or the spectacles through which we interpret all opposition we experience in this life. It may be this morning that you've not trusted in Jesus the Christ who gave his life to rescue his people. It may be that you're here this morning and you've not embraced Jesus Christ in faith. You've not come to treasure Jesus Christ. You've not, as it were, abandoned your life in order to serve him. And receive the life he has for you. We'd encourage you this morning. Don't leave here. Without recognizing that you are like the rest of us. A sinner. In need. In desperate need of a savior. And you cannot do that saving. You cannot perform that saving work. You need someone to do it for you. And that's precisely what God has done in Christ. If you'd like to talk to someone about what it means to trust in Christ, to repent of your sins, and to follow Jesus Christ, we would love to visit with you after the service. As you leave this room, take a left, and that room out there I mentioned called Crossroads on the right-hand side, before you leave this building, go in there and have a conversation with one of our elders. We would love to come alongside of you and you alongside of us as we learn to trust in God's servant, Jesus Christ who rescued us by means of his death and resurrection. So, the church's response to opposition, that was, I know, a bit of a long point here. The church's response to opposition was united prayer. That prayer, of course, was grounded in trust in the sovereignty of God over all opposition. Secondly, our second primary point. Let's look together at the church's request when faced with opposition. The church's Request when faced with opposition. Notice verses 29 and 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. That is the threats of the Jewish leaders. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now notice this. When faced with opposition, the church prays 
What do they pray? What is their request? Boldness. The church requests from God boldness to continue preaching Christ, no matter the opposition. There are perhaps several requests they could have brought before the Lord. They could have prayed for the removal of opposition. And perhaps that would have been a perfectly appropriate prayer. They could have prayed for their own safety. Oh God, keep us safe. One that I think I would have prayed. Perhaps even an appropriate prayer. That is not what they prayed They could have prayed for God's judgment upon those through whom the persecution came. However, while they may have included these requests from time to time, their central concern, I'm taken by this. Oh God, do not allow persecution to nurture in us timidity, compromise, or retreat. They prayed for courage, for boldness. And as they prayed for this boldness, their central concern, of course, they also asked the Lord to continue to validate the message they preached, the message of the gospel, through miraculous demonstrations of his presence. As we're going to see throughout the book of Acts, God oftentimes grants the early church these, these tremendous demonstrations of his presence to validate and vindicate the message of the gospel the early church was preaching. Now, they knew what this meant. They knew exactly what this meant. They knew that continuing to proclaim Jesus Christ amid opposition would result in persecution and even death. So what motivated these Christians to continue to desire to remain faithful to Jesus and even to share the gospel of Jesus before others, even if it cost them their lives. What motivated them? And I think it's really simple. The value of knowing Christ. The early church was motivated by a treasure, and that treasure was found in Christ. Moreover, that treasure is Christ. They treasured Christ more than they treasured their own life. So the reason believers are willing to suffer for Christ's sake is because the value of Christ is infinitely greater than anything else. And it is better to suffer and even die with Christ than to live without him. Amen. And they knew that. And they believed that. Jesus taught in Matthew 13 through a couple of parables, short parables, about the kingdom of heaven, of course. We can't talk about the kingdom of heaven without recognizing that the epicenter of a kingdom is a king. We could say that Jesus is teaching them about the king of the kingdom. And he said these words, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. And buys the field. He gives up everything for this kingdom. 
Jesus goes on to say something similar, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and he bought it. Friends, I ask you this morning, as I asked myself this week and continue to ask myself this morning, is there something in your life that you are simply unwilling to sacrifice for the sake of knowing Christ? Is there that one item, that one activity, that one relationship, that status or prestige or job or future that you're unwilling to give up for the sake of knowing Christ, the pearl of great value, the treasure hidden in a field. Have you like me, and I've done this, and I do it, I do it on a regular basis, as John Calvin said years ago, we are idle factories. We produce them, even unconsciously, since Genesis 3. As I have done, perhaps you have done, we take good things and we elevate them to the status of supremacy. For example, family is a good thing. Is it not, church? Amen. Marriage is a gift from the Lord. Children are a tremendous delight. Most of the time. like their fathers. Family is good. Family is not best. Friends, a good friend. I'm talking the kind of friend where if you don't talk to him for a year, no matter, next conversation, it's as if you haven't missed a second. The kind of friend that at this point just really feels effortless. They know you. And you know them. Friends like that are good. And gifts from the Lord, they are not best. Sports. Sports are good. They belong to the Lord. They occur underneath God's sovereign goodness. He grants them to humanity, to bless humanity. I loved sports growing up. I love sports to this day. I gathered in our gym yesterday evening and uh, played volleyball with a group of people, many of whom are younger than I am and whose knees probably aren't hurting this morning. Volleyball is a gift. Football is a gift. Basketball is a gift. Softball, baseball are gifts. Soccer, a gift. Cross country, a gift to some. Not, not to me. Sports are good. 
They're not best. A GPA, a particular GPA, academic excellence, succeeding in school, making all A's, this is good. It's not best. Particular jobs, ways of making a living, perhaps even making enough to put money aside, bless others, give to your church, Give generously to others. These are good gifts. They are not best. Recognition and applause, they're appropriate in their place. They're even good gifts when when others recognize us. Perhaps even more precisely, recognize God's goodness in and through us. It's good. We enjoy that, don't we? But recognition and applause, these, these are not best. Friends, perhaps you have, like I have and continue to, perhaps you've elevated good things to the status of supremacy alongside of Christ or even over Christ. But you see the early church in Acts 4, what their testimony is, it's really quite simple. Their testimony is Christ is best. And because Christ is best, we're willing to lose our lives for him. Because Christ is best, we're willing to lose family members for him. Because Christ is best, we'll sacrifice sports or jobs or accolades or success or prestige or a GPA, whatever the case may be, it is best better to suffer loss for Christ than to have gain without him. And that's what the church is saying in Acts 4. This is, this is in part the request the church has. Give us boldness to maintain the supremacy of Jesus Christ in the face of opposition. Well, we've seen, we've got to keep moving here. We've seen that the church's response to opposition was prayer rooted in trust in the absolute sovereignty of God. Second, we discovered that the request of the church when faced with opposition was simply this, boldness. Boldness to continue proclaiming Christ, the greatest treasure of all. And by the way, and we're going to, Go right back to our third point and we'll wrap this up. The irony of this is when we forfeit everything for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord, in the resurrection when he returns, he restores everything to us. And he restores everything to us in its proper place, in subordination to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We actually lose nothing and gain everything. If you're a Christian, you can't lose. You can't lose. Come what may. It's really not very fair to the opponent. He's lost. 
and your future is secure in Christ. Third, this morning, let's look together at the result of the church's request. And we will conclude with this. Look with me at verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The place was shaken. This happens again, by the way, in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas are in jail in Philippi and they pray and they're singing, by the way, they're praying and then the the jail shakes, as it were. There's like an earthquake that happens and the prisoners are released. Similar phraseology. In fact, it's the same word itself in Acts 16. Throughout Scripture, earthquakes or shaking manifest, as it were, demonstrate and evidence the presence of God. Throughout, throughout the word of God, this is the case. For example, Exodus chapter 19, when God's people are gathered on Mount Sinai or at the foot of Mount Sinai, what happens to Mount Sinai? It trembles. It shakes. Demonstrating what? God has come down. This is the manifest presence of God. And when God manifests his presence, created things tremble. It's also, it's also why the Hebrews author tells us that we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's another way of saying we've received an eternal kingdom. Tremendous. That's an aside. That was free. Additionally, Isaiah 6, my mind goes to Isaiah 6. Isaiah sees a vision in the temple. And uh, how does he describe this vision? Well, this is where, of course, These angelic beings are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he says, the foundation of the thresholds shook while the temple was filling with smoke. Why did they shake? The manifest presence of God. So that's what's happening here. The church gathers for united prayer, asking God, requesting that God grant them boldness to continue proclaiming Christ. And then the room shakes. Why? God was present among his people. Now notice that the people gathered were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Younger theologians, take note of this, younger worshipers. How did God answer their prayer? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the result, continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I take it that this isn't the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's already happened in Acts 2 and is a single event, I believe, in Scripture. The church, however, can receive multiple fillings of the Spirit for service to Christ, for obedience to Christ, to honor Christ And to spread the gospel. And this is precisely what happens. The church is emboldened to courageously continue proclaiming Jesus Christ. How? Through the filling of the Spirit. Their boldness came from the Holy Spirit. By the way, there are many symptoms of the Spirit's presence. However, one of the primary symptoms of the Spirit's presence is the bold proclamation of the gospel. You need to know that, note that, remember that. When the Spirit fills the church, even in fresh ways, the church responds by doing what the church has been doing, preaching Christ. Amen. Amen. Signs, wonders, and miracles, even in our text, 
may be present, but what will be present is a bold proclamation of the gospel. This is, this is different, I think, than assessing the presence or the absence of the Spirit on account of subjective experiences and emotions or personal impressions. We do this, right? I do this. We leave the worship service and we may say something like this. The Spirit was really present. On what basis do we say this? I would submit to you that it's usually on the basis of a personal and subjective emotional impression. I feel like the Spirit was present. Therefore, the Spirit was present. That may be the case, but may I submit to you that it is actually quite simple. How do we assess the presence of the Spirit of God in unique ways? How do we assess whether or not the Spirit moved in unique ways? It's the answer to this question. Perhaps other questions, but this question. Was Christ boldly proclaimed? If the gospel was proclaimed with boldness, guess what? The Spirit of God moved, whether you felt it or not. That's extremely important for us. And so it's actually faith that causes us to recognize God is at work even when we don't feel it. Amen. That's good news Amen. for those of us with fickle and fleeting emotions. God's purposes and God's work is not dependent on the presence of my emotional stability. We should wrap up. But what a text. What a text and what a moment. For us, over the last week as a church, let's close, that's the third time I'm closing, isn't it? Paul the Apostle did this. He would say lastly, well before he finished. I'm just following scripture. <laughs> Let's close with a couple of, of images. We'll return full circle to our brothers and sisters in Nashville. But let me mention one more to you. Last week I mentioned an early church figure named Polycarp. I really want you to know him. And I want to have the privilege someday of introducing you to him after Christ returns, if you'll give me that privilege. Not because I've met him, but I feel like I have. He was a leading bishop and disciple of the Apostle John. And Polycarp ministered in a place called Smyrna. It's located in ancient Asia Minor. After being arrested for his leadership and bold proclamation of the gospel, uh, when he was at least 86 years of age, he may have been older. It's difficult to tell because of the phrase, something he says um, as he's about to die. Um, he says, for 86 years I have served him. It's hard to know. Is he referring to his, his whole life, as it were, recognizing God's sovereignty over it all? Or is he referring to since he came to know the Lord personally? In which case, no telling how old he was. But he's at least 86. And uh, he was interrogated in the stadium, in the amphitheater there, for his Christian faith, 
Eventually he gave up his life as a martyr right there in front of a bloodthirsty crowd for being a worshiper and follower of Jesus. However, as he was escorted into the stadium, I want to mention this to you. The record indicates, so that is, that is tradition, we've got some of this in, in the martyrdom of Polycarp. Uh, it indicates that he heard a voice, Polycarp heard a voice along with other believers who were with him. So there are other church members there who said, I heard the voice too. And this is what I heard God saying to Polycarp. These words, be strong, Polycarp. And the older translations say this, and play the man. If you don't know this, that's, that's a, there's a verb in Greek that's, it comes from the same root word of, of what it means to be a man. Play the man. Uh, it means something like this, be courageous. Be bold. Be strong, Polycarp. And be courageous. Church family, the school and the church in Nashville need the prayers, as I mentioned, and you know this, love and sympathizing and hopeful grief of the body of Christ. However, one of their needs moving forward, I'm taken by this. One of their needs moving forward is the same need we have. Boldness. Boldness to continue proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ amid opposition rather than responding to opposition with fear or retreat or worry. May God give them, may God give their senior pastor and their other families who have suffered unspeakable loss. And may God give us a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit to continue boldly proclaiming Christ with love, grace, and truth. Let's pray together. Father, we would love it If you would take away opposition, we confess that we desperately desire our comfort. And in a very real sense, in a fundamental sense, we were created for such comfort in your presence. It will be our destiny when Christ returns, but not yet. More than comfort, Father, in this life. More than our desire that you would take away opposition for our brothers and sisters in Nashville and even around the world. We are asking you this morning to fill us with your spirit in such a way that we would not retreat from proclaiming boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ amid opposition. Give us grace and perseverance and endurance to preach Christ even if it costs us everything. We would rather die for Christ than live without him. 
do that for the sake of your great name. In the name of the risen and ascended Christ, we pray together and all God's people said.